Almighty God, you are our God of steadfast love and mercy. Your faithfulness will indeed endure, O Lord. We confess that our hearts are changing and fickle, running after new promises from the world almost daily, sometimes every hour. Lord, grant us your grace this morning to cause us to endure. Hold us, Lord, by your steadfast love so we will not shrink back and be destroyed by the fleeting pleasures of this world. Father, I pray that by faith that you will preserve our souls for your great and abiding and better reward awaits all of those who are in Christ. If we can endure for just a little while longer, waiting for your coming. We ask, Father, that you'll do these things so that you will receive the glory and so that we will receive your good. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to be finishing up Hebrews 10 this morning. We've been working through Hebrews, and uh, we're going to be in the famous chapter next week, Lord willing, chapter 11 of Hebrews. But this morning, we're going to be finishing up verses 32 through 39 of Hebrews chapter 10. On October 28th, a young college student at Wheaton wrote in his journal... And I actually went and looked at the, the actual journal, the actual handwriting of this, this past week online. It's available. And these are the words penned in his journal. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. These are the famous words and quote of Jim Elliott, a popular... Christian Martyr, who just a few years later from writing this, he, along with five other missionaries, died on January 8th of 1956 while seeking to evangelize the Aka Indians of Ecuador. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. This morning, we are faced with a congregation in this passage this morning that is struggling with that kind of truth, who's wondering if Christ and Him crucified is worth it. Is it the gain that God says it is? And we're really transitioning from quite a a passage. We're coming from um, verse 27 where there's a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume us to a transition in verse 32. Notice with me in in chapter 10, verse 32. But, there's the transition, it's a contrast. Recall your former days. This is the transition that's being made. The pastor that's preaching this sermon, which is the book of Hebrews, is is being sensitive here. He has had to say some very harsh and very difficult words. That was last week's sermon. Now, as a pastor, he's wanting to encourage his congregation and, and let them know that they can endure, and that indeed they need to endure. It's very important for them to do so. And so verses 32 through 39 speak of this this desire of this pastor to encourage his congregation toward endurance. And that is my prayer this morning for you, is that this the truth from God's Word, the truth from passage, this passage in verses 32 through 39, will encourage us to endure as God's people, to keep on, to persevere. And I want us to see this, uh, this, this, this uh, moving here in thought along three particular points and three particular lines. And I want us to notice those here. First is a recall. First, first point, point number one, recall your endurance. Recall your endurance. This is verses 32 through 33. Recall your endurance. Now, that's pretty much the point of the text. The other two points are really supporting that, that, that particular point. Point number two is this. The reward 
for enduring, the reward for enduring, verses 34 and 35. And then thirdly, the need for enduring. So recall your endurance. Point number two, the reward for enduring. Point number three, the need for enduring. We're going to run along those tracks this morning as we look at this text together. First, I want us to note this recall, this recalling your endurance, verses 32 through 33. Notice with me first at verse 32, as the pastor is speaking to them of a time in the past, a time in their past. Look at verse 32. But recall the former days. When after you were enlightened, that understanding of enlightened was when you first were illumined, when you first came to see and understand the Scriptures, when you saw Christ for the first time and were wooed to Him. This enlightenment is the conversion experience. He's saying here, this pastor is saying, but apart from this apostasy and those who will fall away from the living God, but recall your former days when after you were enlightened, what happened? You endured a hard struggle. With sufferings. You endure this hard struggle with sufferings. He's speaking to them and encouraging them to look back in their past. This was probably a very, a very short time ago. It wasn't very many months ago when they were enduring in this way. And he's saying, I want you to recall this time, these former days, when you were first, when you first had come to Christ, when you first had been enlightened and you came to know who Jesus Christ and Him crucified was. He says, You endured. This idea of enduring here is an interesting word. It's the idea of standing on the battlefield without retreating. It's the idea of of, of standing your ground. So endure, dig in, prop yourself there and do not move. Endure, and then it goes on, it says, uh, um, endure a hard struggle and sufferings. Hard struggle and sufferings. This word for hard struggle is actually the word athelis, athelis. And it's the Greek word where we get the English word athlete from. And he's saying, when you enter the arena as an athlete, there is no retreat. Endure, when he was speaking these words to this congregation, in their mind was an athlete who was entering into the arena with only one aim, and that was to win, to continue, to endure, no retreat. That's the understanding he's he's presenting here. Enduring this hard struggle... And you are doing this in sufferings. Now what's amazing here about this particular word for sufferings is it only occurs one other time in the book of Hebrews. And it's back in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. Listen with me in chapter 2. If you want to turn there, you may. Hebrews 2, verses 9 through 10. Listen with me at who, in fact, is suffering, using this word that's being used here, speaking of their sufferings. But we see Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Namely, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So that by grace of so, by, so that by the grace of God we might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect. How? Through suffering. Brothers and sisters, know this. If you are going to follow Christ, you're going to suffer. This should not surprise you. If if Christ led the life of a suffering servant, and we are to follow Him, then indeed we must understand we should not be taken um, off, we should not be knocked off guard when suffering comes into our life due to faithfulness. Because when we are a Christ follower, we are following one who suffered. And we are no more like Christ than when we suffer. When we suffer, when we turn our hearts over to Him, when we turn our lives over to Him and say, Lord, Your will, not mine. And through faithfulness, This is how God Himself worked through Jesus Christ and suffering, brothers and sisters, is the, listen to this, is the means by which God is using to to cause us to become unfettered from this world and become more and more fettered to the things of God and to His glory. And so, brothers and sisters, do not be taken by the fact that as a Christian following Christ, 
one is going to suffer. This pastor here was saying, remember those former days when you were first converted, when you first came to Christ, you endured. You were like an athlete who went into the arena and refused to recant or refused to retreat, and you suffered, and you suffered well. But notice the, not just the time here, but the, the nature of this suffering, the nature of what they were, they were ex- being exposed to. Verse 33, if you will. He's saying, recall these former days when, when you were enlightened, when you had suffered, but they had suffered in particular ways. First, verbally, and then secondly, in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a physical way. Verse 33 speaks of the first part is the verbal uh, uh, suffering. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach, and then secondly, to physical suffering, affliction. And sometimes being partners with those so treated. Notice the word sometimes there twice. The ebb and flow of this ill treatment is what was driving them crazy. There were days of peace and tranquility. But there were also very difficult days where they were being pressed. And according to this, they were under reproach and affliction. It says they were also partners with those who were so treated. It was a very difficult time for them. As the suffering and the difficulties came and went, sometimes it says being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and then sometimes being partners with those so treated. First, this is this personal, this personal affliction, this personal uh, suffering. It speaks of the fact that they were verbally suffering and the fact that they were being reproached, it says here. It was, the idea here is that they were being accused of things. They were being insulted. They were being spoken ill of because of their convictions and the things that God had called them to. And then we see the physical afflictions where they were going through a very difficult time, public tribulation and oppression. Notice what it says here in verse 33 when it speaks of the fact that it says, sometimes being publicly exposed... That word's the word that where we get our word for theater. The point here is this, is that it was as if they were on the stage of a theater. They were being publicly exposed in such a way that they were being reproached and afflicted, and it wasn't off in a corner somewhere, but it was out front, open, in front of everybody. It was something that was, that was known to all. And so... This personal affliction, this personal difficulty was hard for them as they struggled this reproach and this affliction personally. But it says they not only did that, that's one aspect of their struggling. Brothers and sisters, these believers were willing to lean in with their other brothers and sisters in their suffering. It says in verse 33, and sometimes being partners. That word for partner is the word where we get the word fellowship from. It's koinia. It's the idea of of having partnership with others. And and sometimes it says being partners with those so treated. In other words, they were not only taking these hits of being uh, convicted Christians, but then they were also partnering or fellowshipping with those who were also doing the same. That were their friends and their brothers and sisters in Christ who were being reproached and afflicted. They were stepping in and also carrying that with them. Don't we so often connect fellowship with eating? Isn't that our idea? Fellowship means we eat together. If you read the word fellowship throughout the New Testament, you know what you'll find? Fellowship is connected with suffering together. A right understanding, a biblical understanding of fellowship is an idea of we step in to fellowship. This koinia is an idea of not eating together, but of suffering together. Of carrying one another's burdens and sorrows. Of being there when you're being reproached and afflicted and your brother and sister in Christ is also there. That's the understanding that's, being taking place, that's taking place here. These partners in Christ. In other words, it's 1 Corinthians twelve twenty six. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all will rejoice together. They're leaning into loving one another. Loving one another well. Now, note this. This isn't just affliction or suffering for affliction and suffering's sake. Notice that this was, this was not a fact where they were actually positively or actively pursuing the suffering. Sometimes we, we read these passages and we think that what God's calling us to do is to pursue the suffering. No, this suffering was placed upon them and they were carrying it well. And it wasn't just due to um, foolish decisions in their life. Some of us suffer because we're not smart. Isn't that right? 
We make decisions that aren't wise. That's why we're suffering in some ways. This suffering that we're speaking of here this morning is a suffering that's due to faithfulness. I'm going to stand for Jesus Christ and Him crucified in a culture that's opposed to Him, and I'm going to receive reproach and affliction because of it. Let's not put the two together. Let's not not assume that, well, if I'm suffering, then obviously, because I'm a child of God, then I'm suffering for Jesus. No, that's not always the case, and we know that's true. In this case, it was because of their faithfulness. Let us be careful there. Under this point, I simply want to wrap up by asking you this. Those who know Christ, I figured it up this morning or yesterday because I hadn't thought about it in a while. I've been following Christ now for 24 years. And it's amazing to think back through what God has done in those 24 years and where he brought me. But I want to encourage you, church, to recall, recall, as it says here, your former days when you were first enlightened. When you came to Christ, do you remember those few months when faith was fresh and quick? It's almost like faith filled you, like like, like wind filling the sails of a boat. Faith drove you along. Do you remember back when you were first enlightened when repentance was deep and awe-filling? Your heart was tender to the things of God. You were careful with sin. It didn't just, it didn't just lay around your life, but you were diligent to repent and turn to Christ when this repentance was deep and it filled you with awe. Do you remember those former days when hope in, hope in heaven... Excuse me, hope and joy for heaven to come calls you to risk things. Reputation and name. Do you remember that? When that hope and joy for heaven, it calls you to to step out beyond your comfort zone and risk things because you knew heaven was worth it. And Christ was good and He saved you and delivered you from your sin. Do you remember when the Word of God wasn't something you just kind of flopped through and played with, but your eyes were wide open and you drank deeply of the Word of God, you turned every page as if it was a new treasure. This new, this new book that I've read all my life, and now all of a sudden the Spirit has so opened my eyes, I've been enlightened that I'm, I'm hearing from God. It's like the, page, the words are coming right off the page. Do you remember those former days? So much of that was a long time ago for me. Maybe a long time ago for you. Brothers and sisters, if we're going to endure, we need to remember our former days when we were first enlightened. We need to remember what God had given to us. We need to be reminded of the treasure we have in Christ. We need to be encouraged to go back and to not be so... It's it's so familiar now, isn't it? Over 24 years, me being a Christian doesn't take any effort. I can kind of get up and go through my day half thinking about it and and not really bump into anything that's going to be contrary to anything that I've ever done for the last 24 years. You see, when I first came to Christ, I came to Christ at age 17. It was brand new. Everything was was bright. (laughs) This book was amazing and precious. Sin was heinous. We grow weary. Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you. I want to commend you. Recall your former days. Go back to when you knew Christ first and ask the Lord to give you again that fervor for His Word, that sensitivity and tenderness in your heart for sin and for faith and a desire for repentance like you once knew, a hope for heaven that would cause you to risk things. Ask God to do that for you again. We get busy, don't we? It's not anything bad that's taking that from you. Let me say that. You think, well, it's all this awful stuff. No, it's just life. It's all the good things replacing the best things. And that is your time with the Lord, your relationship with Him, nurturing the Spirit in you. So I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, to remember those former days when you were first enlightened that you may endure 
that you may endure. Point number two is the reward for enduring. The reward for enduring. Verses 34 and 35. Look with me if you will. For you have had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Do we see here the value of this reward? How valuable this reward was to God's people during this time. This was, again, speaking of their past. He's saying, do you remember that it says here that they were um, being partners with those so treated in verse 33? Well, how, how specifically were they partnering with those who were so treated? Well, to the degree that they were having compassion on those in prison. Now, this isn't some today's prison ministry where you go and you, and you talk to these guys who are in, um, in air-conditioned rooms with basketball courts and uh, all the TV, more TVs than I have and, and, and all the amenities. These people who were being placed in prison first were being placed in prison because of their faith. It wasn't just prisoners in general. They weren't just going and starting a prison ministry because that was the thing for them to do. These were brothers and sisters who were in the church who stood for their faith. And this church was caring for these people that were placed in prison because they were standing for their faith. And they were going to them. This is why. Because if somebody did not come to them and bring them food, clothing, water, medical supplies, they would die there. So this is not um, the, the nice prison ministry that we often think of now. How was it they were having compassion? They were going and caring for their brothers and sisters in Christ who were, because of their faith and standing for their faith, they were being sent to prison. No doubt, don't you think, there were dads there that had to leave their wife and children at home and there wasn't, there wasn't the government to take care of them. It was the church to take care of them. And so the church was caring for their people here. They were having compassion on them. During these days in the past, this church was putting it all on the line. They were having compassion for those in prison. It's amazing as it goes on. It says, first, they had a, he says, you had compassion. Second thing is, you joyfully accepted. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Now, it's one thing for this passage to say they accepted the plundering of their property, Right? But it doesn't, it doesn't say that. What's amazing about this passage is that it says they joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. The idea is that when they left with the food and goods to go take care of their brothers and sisters who were in prison. And as they left, they left their home there. And while their home was there, the others who were not believers in the city that hated them and despised them and were approaching them and afflicting them said, Hey, let's go, let's go ransack their house while they're away taking care of the other Christians. And so it became known to these Christians that when they left to care for their brothers and sisters, that they were leaving their stuff to be taken and to be plundered. Their property was being plundered. This is not new, brothers and sisters. Now, I can preach this message right now and say, you know what, everybody in here needs to have a yard sale and you'll be more righteous because of it. And that, that's not true. You know, the issue here is our hearts being tied to our things. Um, you, you are all aware of the fact that our hearts are far too tied to our things than they need to be. Mine is, yours is. And, and a yard sale won't fix it, will it? You can sell all of your stuff and your heart be just as tied to it. Right? But the idea that Christians are to be people who hold to the things of this world lightly is is familiar and regular and normative for the Christian church throughout the centuries. We're living in a, a bubble, folks. Um, the, the Christianity here in America is so different, you know? I'm complaining because my daughter can't get an appointment until the 19th. Then you go to Ethiopia, and when your daughter gets sick there, you pray for her, and if God doesn't answer, she dies. You can take your paperwork to the hospital, and they'll get to you. They'll call you a year after she's dead and say, oh, by the way, you've got a spot now. See, we forget, brothers and sisters, that we complain about far too much. We pray far too little. We have to be a people who are willing to hold to the things of this world lightly. Don't you think that's exactly what 
a man by the name of Martin Luther thought as his stuff was on the edge of being taken. And he sings, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever. He, he, see, he had that, that was normative for Christians. Now, again, um, you know, go sell all your stuff, you're no more righteous. So I'm not saying um, uh, if, you, if you have a bunch of stuff, you're not righteous. If you're poor and don't have anything, then you're more righteous. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying whatever we have, whether little or much, let's hold to it, let's hold to it lightly. It's not worth our souls. We can build bigger and better barns, but at the end of the day, our soul will be required of us. So they were joyfully accepting the plundering of their property. How in the world could they do that? How could they joyfully accept the plundering of their property? Because of the third thing that's mentioned here in verse 34. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. You see, here's all my stuff. And here's the one possession. It says here, a possession. A better possession and an abiding one. There's one possession and then there's all my stuff. Which am I going to live for? They were saying joyfully, I'm going to live for the one possession that God has given to me. Why? Because of two reasons. Because first, it is a better possession than anything I can hold and have. Now, I'm not talking about just your things. I'm talking about your family. I'm talking about your house. I'm talking about things that are, that are wonderful and privileges for us. Our wives, all these things that are blessings. Those things or this one possession, which is a better one. Christ is better. And here's another reason why they were able to joyfully have the, their property plundered. It's because this possession wasn't just better, but it was abiding. It would last it's not just of this world. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. And then, and I went and actually looked at this passage so I can make sure it was there because I remembered it, but I wasn't sure if it was actually there or if I was putting it there as I was thinking about it in my mind. It says, Then in his joy... He goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. The kingdom of heaven is like that. The man with joy goes and sells everything he has and buys the field. The next one says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. Fine pearls, plural. He's looking for fine pearls. Who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. You see, this valuable award, this valuable reward that God has given to us is a better reward. A better reward and an abiding one. Notice this warning here in our passage as it makes a turn here in verse 35 and says, Therefore, because we have this better possession and this abiding one and because you were willing to joyfully accept the plundering of your property and because when you were first saved you received and accepted this reproach and this affliction and you stood with those who also were going through this because of all that therefore do not throw away your confidence now i've added now by the way he says now that you're where you're at he's transitioning in time here he's saying therefore do not throw away your confidence why which has a great reward which has a great reward. He's turning from the past to the, to the beginning. He's saying this life of faith, hope, and love, you can, you can, you can give it all in. The idea here is, is a verse 35 of throwing it away, is of throwing it out on the ground for people to trot on. Throwing it out on the road so that not only you, but anyone else that's there can trot on that. He's saying when you throw your faith away and you go back to the world, you know what the world's going to say? That faith is worthless. It's worth being trotted on. When you, when, when you abandon your faith and you go back into the world, the world's looking at that and saying, look, I'm walking on, on Shane's faith. It didn't mean anything to him. During difficult times, he didn't endure. It wasn't worth it. Pastor here is saying, therefore, do not throw your confidence away. 
Because in throwing away, you throw away it all. All this that you've endured, all this you've given up. If you throw your confidence away now, you're not only losing all of that, but he points forward and he says, you're losing the great reward that the Father has for you, that the Father has promised you. This example of this very thing is given to us in chapter 11, and I want you to turn there with me, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24. And it's using Moses as an illustration. You remember, what was Moses born into? He was born into great prosperity, wasn't he? He had everything. And at that day, he had Egypt. By the end of a string, he could, do, he could have anything he wanted, right? Because he was being brought up under, in, in Pharaoh's house, basically. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24 says, He speaks of this Moses who was looking to the reward instead of the things of this world. Look, verse 24, By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of the Pharaoh's daughter. Listen, verse 25, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. He looked at Egypt and all that it had and all it had to offer, he looked at Christ. He looked at God's promise. And he said, God is worth it. Egypt is not. Every sin, every single sin in your life and mine is an assumption, starts with an assumption that Christ is not enough. Hear me. Every single sin that you or I commit starts with the assumption that Christ isn't enough. Every time you sin, you abandon the better and abiding possession that's in Christ for a promise that this world is giving to you. For just a moment you begin thinking that your happiness and your satisfaction and that your love and that your joy can be found in the things of this world. And God's declaration is that His reward is abiding. His reward is better. His possession is a great reward. You know why we sin? Because we're not convinced that God has our best interest at heart. We go after the things of this world we're not, can we look at Egypt and we say, I want it. And it's easy for us today because we have commercials screaming at us. We have the world telling us that everything is good and wonderful. And God in His plan says, no, the world is not what is going to last. But the Lord says, my will is what's going to last. 1 John 2.15 do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Listen to the things of the world, brothers and sisters. For all that's in the world, what are they? The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but from the world. Now listen to this. All of that is true, right? Now listen to this last part of First John chapter 2. The world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. That's a promise. That's a promise that we have to bank on when the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life begin creeping in and saying, you can do this and get just a little bit of enjoyment right now and have satisfaction apart from God. It's a lie and it's empty. Brothers and sisters, every sin that we sin is an assumption that Christ isn't enough. Number three, number three, point number three, the need for enduring. The need for enduring, look with me, if you will, at verse 36. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. We need to endure, brothers and sisters, 
Because this is why. According to verse 36, you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what is promised. Here's the point. If you don't endure, you will not receive anything that God has promised. And what a tragedy. It's not that you're going to receive some of God's promises and not get others. It's that you will not receive the promise that God has given to you. It's the world and all that's in it or God and His promises. You see, we need to endure. We cannot give up. We cannot abandon. We cannot leave the faith. Because so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Hmm. What is this will of God? Honor your parents. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Don't bear false witness. Is that the will of God? Notice with me what I believe this pastor understands the will of God being. Look with me, if you will. Turn back in chapter 10. Within the book, within the chapter, chapter 10, look with me at verse 7. Look with me at verse 7. Chapter 10, verse 7. Then I said, Behold, this is Christ speaking, by the way. It speaks of that verse in verse 5. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do what? To do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And so Christ is doing the will of God. And he's done that by coming and, and giving his life as a sacrifice for our sin. It goes on in verse 9. It says, Then he added, Behold, I have come to do what? To do your will. He does away, this is the Father, He does away with the first in order to establish the second. In other words, the old covenant, the first covenant, is done away with. Now the new covenant, and that is, that is the one of Christ, who is a better covenant, has been established. Why? Because Jesus Christ had done the will of the Father. Look down with me in verse 10, the next verse here, in chapter 10. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. So, what is the will of God? I want to commend to you this morning, brothers and sisters, that the will of God is believing in Jesus. Believing in what He has done and who He is. You say, well, wait a minute here. This looks like here in our passage, in chapter 10, verse 36, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. We, we receive what is promised by doing what God has called us to do, and that is to, to, to live lives that are indicative of God's calling, right? God has called us to believe in Christ. That is His will. John chapter 6, verse 40 says, For this is the will of the Father. John chapter 6, verse 40. This is the will of the Father. What's the will of the Father? That everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I'll raise Him up on the last day. That's the will of the Father, that we believe on the Son. Now, are you saying, Shane, that we're supposed to not worry about any of the commandments and any of the imperatives and any of the rules? What I'm saying is that we can't do those things in our own strength. You see, each one of us can... Uh, you should not murder, okay? And most of us in here will be just like the good Pharisees of the New Testament and say, well, we haven't done that. You should not commit adultery. Well, we haven't done that. We should, we should honor our father and, parent, our father and mother. We, should, we can do that. But the point here is this. When we believe in Christ, when we believe in Christ, when we trust that He is better and the world is not, when we trust that He is the authority in our lives, then you know what we're going to do when we're trusting in Christ as our authority? We're going to honor our father and mother. You know what we're going to do when we begin trusting in Jesus Christ as the only life worth living is in Jesus Christ? And that life evermore, eternal life, is truly in Christ? You know what we'll do? We will not murder or speak ill of others or hate other people. Do you know what we'll do when we begin believing and trusting in Christ? We would trust that His faithfulness is good and satisfying and it's enough. His faithfulness is. You know what that will keep us from doing? Sexual morality. Lusting in our heart. You see, that's exactly what Jesus was saying. He's saying, you guys can do all these things rote. Pull up your bootstraps and get the commandments done. They were able to do it. But the Lord says, I, I was not intending on for you to have a list here of things for you to do. I was intending for you to trust in Christ. And in so doing... 
you're going to be living out these commandments. We trust Jesus Christ, who is our lot, our provision, our portion. And you know what will happen when we do that? We'll no longer want to steal. You see how we're not supposed to just simply keep the commandments. We're supposed to trust in Christ. And it's so trusting in Christ, those commandments will become not a burden, but a joy. I have Christ. I don't have to steal. I have Christ. I don't have to look at another. I have Christ. I don't need those other things. I have one authority who guides and protects and guards me and has my best interest in heart. So I can do the things that God has called me to do out of love and joy for Him. Brothers and sisters, how are you going to endure? Have you, and you have, because I have, have you tried to endure by just putting your head down and grunting through? You have. And you know that don't work, right? It doesn't work. You don't have enough oomph in you to do it for very long. How are we going to endure? By doing the will of God. What is the will of God? Look to Jesus Christ and believe in Him. You see, that's exactly what this pastor was trying to help them to understand. You have a need to endure. So when you have done the will of God, that is, believed in Christ, you may receive what is promised by Christ. Now, the thing is, is that they were in the midst of a very, very difficult time. These Christians during this time were, were, were struggling, were suffering. Obviously, their stuff was being taken. Um, they were being thrown into prison. We, we do not think that there was actually martyrs in the sense of bloodshedding because it says in Hebrews chapter 12 that they had not yet resisted to the point of shedding their blood. So it hadn't gotten to that. But brothers and sisters, it was close. And we know from studying this book that this book was probably around 49 to 55 A.D., and around the 60s when Nero came along and started putting Christians on stakes and burning them at night for streetlights. So the bloodshed was coming. This pastor didn't know that yet. And he says, you need to endure. And everything they were seeing looked as if God did not care. Everything, they were looking around, they were saying, Lord, we're following you, we're trying to be faithful. You're the God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and our stuff's being taken. Our families are being thrown into, into, into prison. There, there's all this horrible stuff happening. Lord, what's going on? We don't, we, don't, we don't recognize that you're even noticing what's going on here. Did you feel that on Wednesday morning? I did. Right? Lord, don't you see this? And this pastor turns these people to the book of Habakkuk. And as Ronnie read for us this morning, the book of Habakkuk is an amazing book. Only three chapters. The first chapter, this is what Habakkuk says. Let me back up and say this. The Assyrians had already come and taken half of God's people and basically butchered them. The Babylonians were rising now and becoming powerful. They'd overcome the Assyrians. And the Babylonians were basically on their doorstep, coming down, getting ready to butcher the rest of God's people. And you know what God's people were doing? The only thing they can do is sit there and wait for it to happen. They were literally seeing the, the, the clouds in the, in, in the distance coming. And them and their families were sitting there waiting for these godless, wicked people who could care less about God to come and completely devastate all that there is. Now, folks, that's a recession that's unthinkable for us, right? There's nothing standing when that's done. And Habakkuk is a prophet speaking into this. And this is what he does. He complains to God in chapter 1. It's good to have complaining prophets because it reminds me that I'm like them in so many ways. Habakkuk chapter 1 says this, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? you felt that before, haven't you? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. In other words, Lord, they're coming. There's nothing I can do. There's nothing I can do to encourage these people that are God's people. The Babylonians are coming. And so his complaint turns into chapter 3. Chapter 1 is a complaint. Chapter 3, which is the last chapter, is a prayer of Habakkuk. And many of you have heard this prayer. And Notice the difference between chapter 1 and chapter 3. Chapter 3 says, O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. Though the fig tree should not blossom, 
nor fruit, fruit be on the vines. The produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Hmm. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's and makes me tread on my, high, on my high places. The question I have is this, brothers and sisters. What happened between chapter 1 and chapter 3? What sent Habakkuk from complaining and crying out to God, you don't see us, you don't care about us, there's nothing that's, that's, that's in, in, in any way indicative that you are present in helping us in this regard. To chapter 3, where he says, even if it all goes away, I'm going to trust in you. What, what, was, the, what was the turning point? Well, obviously, the turning point is chapter 2, which is what Ronnie read for us. The turning point was this. In, Hebrew, or in, in Habakkuk chapter 2 is where this quote, verses 37 and 38, came out of. You see that in our passage here, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 37 and 38? In, that, in chapter 2 is this quote. Yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. This is God speaking to his people. This is God saying to his people, don't shrink back. The righteous shall live how? Not by the things they see. Not by the damage that's coming around them. Not by the devastation that's all around them. The righteous shall live by trying harder? No. The righteous will live by winning the election? No. The righteous will live by working the angles and doing our best so that, so that we can have the advantage whenever we can? Brothers and sisters, the righteous shall live by faith. In God and not in our resources. The righteous is going to live by faith, according to this passage. He says, yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. Now, does that mean that the Babylonians stopped and they no longer came? No, they still came. But the message is, is that our hope is not in the things of this world and the things that we have or don't have. In other words, these people in the book of Habakkuk, their stuff was plundered as well. It's just they didn't make it out of that alive. And in Habakkuk it says, the righteous shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul will have no pleasure in him. So brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you this morning. Endurance is necessary. And the way we're going to endure, if we're righteous, if we're God's people, is by faith. And the truth is this. But we are not of those... Hear this, those who are trusting in Christ. We are not of those, look at verse 39, who shrink back and are destroyed. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. We are to be leaning into one another. We're to be caring for one another. We're to be loving one another. We're to be standing for the truth of God and His Word. And we're to be doing that understanding that we'll be put on public display for reproach and affliction. We may even have to stand with brothers and sisters who are doing the same. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. But, verse 39, of those who have faith and preserve their souls. We're of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Who is that right there where it speaks of he says in verse 39, We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those, you see that, who have faith and preserve their souls. The encouragement of this passage for me was that the of those that have faith and preserve their souls are Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah. See, this pastor goes right out of those who have, have faith and preserve their souls into a description of all of those who have had faith in the past and so preserve their souls. And you know what's so... So encouraging about this is that these guys in Hebrews chapter 11 aren't men who have made every single decision faithfully. 
They stumbled and bumbled and did everything they could to try to be faithful, and yet they, they struggled in that. We don't find Abraham as a spotless lamb, do we? Or, or Noah, or Enoch, or Abel, or, or Sarah. We don't find these people as perfect. You know what we find them as? Faithful. In the midst of struggle. They endured. They weren't perfect, nor are we going to be. But this pastor is saying, we are of those who have faith. And thus preserve our souls. So brothers and sisters, endure. Endure by trusting in Christ. Do not shrink back from Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Continue to trust Him. His reward is better. It is abiding. And this morning, as we come to this table, we're coming to this table not as perfect people. If you're perfect this morning, you don't need this table. Okay? So don't come if you're perfect. If you're perfect, you don't need it. You don't need the sacrifice. That's for somebody else. But if you're one who this morning is seeking to endure, who's seeking by faith to persevere, then you are like me who need to be sustained and nourished by the cup and by the bread. Because that's exactly what we do as God's people. Once a month, we come and we take the cup and we take the bread and we eat it by faith, acknowledging that this nourishes our faith reminding us again that it is Jesus Christ and Him crucified that makes all the difference. And so this morning, I want to encourage you to uh, uh, reflect and evaluate your own heart. Page 5 of the worship journal speaks of those who should be coming and receiving of the Lord's table this morning, those who are regenerate, who have placed their faith in Christ, those who are repentant, those who do not have or are not living in any habitual or treasured sin in your own life and in your own heart, those who are responsible, seeking to be faithful within a covenant body of believers, and those who are reconciled, those who have made things right, specifically among those among the body of believers. I want to encourage you in that regard. This table this morning is also for those who may not come and take it. There are many of our children this morning who have not received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You may be in that place where you have not received Christ as your Lord and Savior. Know that you can, adva- you can have an advantage from this table by doing this. This table, as we come and take the bread and take the cup, is a declaration of the gospel. And so as, as you watch those who come and take of the bread and take of the cup and eat it, you're watching the gospel being displayed. And so in that way, pray that the Lord will so bring conviction and repentance in your heart that you may receive Christ through the declaration of the gospel by the eating and coming and taking of the table. And so this morning, I want us to prepare our hearts now for the receiving of the Lord's table. I'm going to ask Phil to come and ask for prayer, specifically for the offering that will be given and thanksgiving for the Lord's provision. And then after his prayer, we're going to sing a hymn and then proceed to the Lord's table together. All right, Phil, if you would come.